I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're finally back to the Gospel of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, chapter 5, which you can find on Pew Bible, page number 959. Pew Bible, page 959, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting today in verse 17. I know it's been a while since we were in Matthew together. We took a break for Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. So let me remind you where we are. Our sermon series is called Following Jesus because that's what we're learning to do in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a theological biography of the most compelling person in history, the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has called us to follow Him and fish for more followers. Jesus said, follow me and what? So we're learning to follow Him in the Gospel of Matthew. And we've reached the first of five major blocks of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, arguably the greatest teaching ever given, which we have come to call Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus teaches with unequaled authority what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom which He has announced has drawn near. It's going to take us a while to get all the way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but that's not a bad thing. This teaching deserves all the attention that we can give it. Jesus began His message by declaring what a flourishing life looks like, the good life. And it was different than what we might expect, right? In fact, just about everything Jesus says in these three chapters is different than what we might expect. Jesus turns our expectations upside down. Jesus turns our world upside down. Jesus describes a kingdom that to us seems upside down. Where the people who are blessed are those who are needy, sad, lowly, unsatisfied. And even persecuted because of following Him. But that's the way it really is. That's that's where the flourishing is. And Jesus told His disciples then that they are salt and that they are, what? Light. They're going to have a big influence on their world. Imagine a world with no salt. Now imagine a world with no light. Jesus' followers are world changers, making a real and visible difference in the world to the glory of their Father in heaven. Remember that? Well, that was just the introduction to His amazing sermon. Now Jesus gets down to brass tacks. Jesus is going to get off to the races. And he's going to say some more radical things. Jesus has already turned the world upside down. Now he plans to do it again. He's going to say some more audaciously surprising things. And he's going to say them authoritatively. With audacious authority. In fact, as I studied these next four verses for today, the thing I kept thinking the most was, Who does Jesus think he is? I almost titled the sermon that, but I'm going to save that one because it's going to come up again and again as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. Who does Jesus think he is? As I read it to you, think about what he's saying about himself here. I think we've just gotten used to it. But imagine anybody else talking this way. And what you and I would think of that person if we heard them talking this way. Now here is the title for today, okay? Ready for this? It involves some math, so you can tell me if I've got it wrong. 
Jesus and the first two-thirds of the Bible. Jesus and the first two-thirds of the Bible. Because what Jesus is going to say in this next section is going to rock the world of his listeners. And they are going to think that from what he says, that maybe he's throwing out the first two-thirds of the Bible. What am I talking about there? The Old Testament. Did you ever notice that the Old Testament is quite a bit longer than the New? Right? Old Testament, New Testament. Or Old Testament, New Testament. Okay, it's, it's not exactly two-thirds, but uh, horseshoes and hand grenades, it'll work for today. What did Jesus think about the Old Testament? How did Jesus relate to the Old Testament? Well, let's listen to him. Let's read it and see. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for these words. Help us to get them, to understand them. It's been a a joy for me to kind of live in them, to make my home in them recently, to see how this sermon works and what it's saying to us. It's radically different than the world. It's radically different from what others might teach us. But it's a word straight from Jesus to us. So help us, Lord, to get it and to get into it and have it get into us. Reorient us, Lord, to the way things really are in the kingdom. I pray that Jesus Christ would be magnified, glorified, and praised as we study his words to us. And we pray it in His name. Amen. I've had to begin using a new Bible because my old one is falling apart. Some of you uh, may have noticed a, a few weeks ago, my old one lost a few pages. I was up here preaching and some, some pages fell out and kind of fell onto the floor. And I'm like, okay, I don't stick them back in. I, I've had to, to pick up another one because the binding is loose so that I can kind of, well... You can see how that is. <laughs> I'm told that it's a good sign when your Bible is falling apart because, from use because that means your life won't be falling apart. I like the sound of that. But imagine for a second if I took my Bible and I just ripped out the whole Old Testament and threw it away. There'd be a gasp in this room, wouldn't there? Good. And I just tossed it on the stage. I said, we don't need that anymore. Pages are flying everywhere. Cindy comes in on Thursday and cleans up my mess like she normally does. And she puts them all on my, pay, on my desk. And I'm like, I said, we don't need this anymore. And I toss that into the, into the paper recycling. And I never refer to the Old Testament again. 
And then I tear them out of every Bible in my office. And I put them in the trash. And I delete the Old Testament on my computer. And I never preach from the Old Testament from this pulpit again. What would you think of that? Well, that's kind of like what Jesus' opponents thought he wanted to do. The way Jesus will interact with the Old Testament, when you read the Gospels, and you see how Jesus interacts with the Old Testament, especially the Mosaic Law, will lead some people, especially the Pharisees, to believe that Jesus was tossing it out of his Bible. And Jesus knows they're going to think that. He knows they're going to think that way. So he heads them off at the pass and kicks off the main part of his Sermon on the Mount by dispelling that very idea. Look again at the first part of verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Get that out of your head right now, he says. That's not why I'm here at all. I have not come on the scene to attack the Old Testament. I'm not here to destroy it or tear it down or talk it down or hurt the Old Testament in any way. Quite the opposite. Verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've only got two points this morning, and here is number one. Jesus has come to fulfill the entire Old Testament. The law and the prophets is one way of saying the whole thing. The whole Old Testament. Law and prophets. Kind of everything in between. It's the whole kit and caboodle. And far from coming to abolish the Old Testament, Jesus says He's come to fulfill it. Now that should not be a surprise to those of us who have been reading the Gospel of Matthew. We've already seen that this word fulfill is one of Matthew's favorite words. Right? How many times have we seen it already in just four and a half chapters? We're going to see it a lot more before we get to the end of Matthew. Apparently, he gets his love for this word from Jesus. Matthew loves to point out that Jesus fills to the full the Old Testament. It's part of his mission in life. He has come for this very purpose. If somebody said to you, why did Jesus come? Why Christmas? Okay, Why do we celebrate Jesus coming at Christmas? One of the answers to that question would be to fulfill the Old Testament. The reason for Christmas is fulfilling the law and the prophets or to complete their intended purpose. That's what it means to fulfill something, to complete its intended purpose. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus. Do you see what I mean when I say, who does he think he is? He doesn't just say surprising things. He claims that the first two-thirds of the Bible are about him. I believe they are. But imagine if anyone else talked like that. You know, yeah, that Bible thing from God, first two-thirds of it, it's about me. Look, look at that. You're seeing me. Do you believe that the whole Old Testament is about Jesus? That he fulfills it? Have you seen it yourself as you're reading the Old Testament? One of the goals of my preaching ministry for the last 15 years or so has been to take us through the big story of the Old Testament And show how it relates to Jesus. Remember 2003 when we did Genesis? In 2005 we did Exodus. In 2007 we did Numbers. And then we, you know, at every step of the way, one of the things I'm trying to do is to show how that book points us to Jesus. What was our series called on the books of Kings? You remember? 
the king of kings in the books of kings. When the kings were at their best, they reminded us of the promise of Jesus. When the kings were at their worst, they reminded us why we needed Jesus. That's true of everything in your Old Testament. It all points to Jesus in some way, often in multiple ways at the same time. Even the book of Leviticus. Ever try to read the Bible and get stuck around Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy? I'm in Deuteronomy right now in my daily Bible reading, and it's kind of, it's kind of a slog. Those books also pointed to Jesus. So don't let anybody draw a big fat line between the Old Testament and the New Testament as if they're at war with one another and tell you that the Old Testament God was one thing and the New Testament God is another or that Jesus has come to save us from the Old Testament God or that Jesus threw out the Old Testament. You know, there was a guy in church history in the first couple centuries of the church named Marcion, Marcion, who did that. He actually cut out the Old Testament from his Bible and tried to create a Christianity that was based on only the last third. You know what Jesus would say to that? No way. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Look at the next verse, verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So far from distancing himself, he doubles down on it, right? He doubles down on this promise. He has come to fulfill the Old Testament, and he will fulfill the Old Testament. And nothing is going to stop him. I love that phrase, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen. Or or if you have the King James, what does it say? Not one jot nor one tittle. You know what a jot and a tittle are? The Greek for jot there is iota. It's like our letter I, a very small letter in our alphabet. And in Greek, it stood for the Hebrew letter yod. That's where we get jot, yod Jot, you see how they sound alike? Let me show you a yod, okay? Uh, Does anybody know what this word is? No? Good guess. Yod is a letter. Does anybody know what this word is? Elohim. That's right. Did somebody say Elohim? Okay. That's Elohim. That's That's a name for God, right? This right here is a yod, okay? There, the, somebody has gone through the Bible and counted the yods. There are 66,420 in the Old Testament, okay? Jesus says not one of them is going to get lost. Now, the tittle is like this. Is this letter? That's in English, okay? You know that, you know that letter? What is it? Okay, is that the same as this, le- as this w- letter? No, what's the difference? Just that, just that little mark, right? Yeah, exactly. Now, how about this one? Letter O? Letter Q, right? What's the difference? Just this little mark. Letter F? Letter P? What's different? Just this little mark. What letter is that? That's the letter bait in Hebrew. Ready? That's kof. Do you see a difference? I'll go back. See the difference? It's just this little bit turns a bait into a cove. 
I mean, a cope into a bait. How about, so there, there they are next to one another. Here's another one. This one, this one here is a resh, like our R, like our R. And this one is a, a dalet, which is like our, our D. You see the difference between them? It's just this little mark right here. And some of them, it would be even more clear if, the, if you saw a straight line here. And just this little tiny mark on the end turns a resh into a dalet. How about these two? The one on the right, that's a hay. And this one is a hate. Okay? And th- what's the difference? Just this little mark. If that little mark was right there, those two letters would be the same. The, that's what a tittle is. It's that tiny little mark. Now, it's tiny, but it's important too, right? Imagine mixing up some of those letters and what it would do to the message. Is the word, uh, let's see here. Let's go back. Let's do, let's do one of those. Uh, is the word pun and the word fun the same word? For me, they are, you know, because I love puns, right? But, but what if every time you saw the word run, you thought it, it meant pun, right? Or, um, uh, um, let's see here. I can't think of good words that would separate those. But you get the idea, right? They're tiny little letters. And Jesus says, not one of those is going to get lost. Right? If they did, it would start changing things, especially if it happened on a wide scale. But not even one of them is going to get lost. Jesus has come to fulfill the entire Old Testament. Now that should encourage us, right? There isn't anything going to be left out or dropped. Every promise would be fulfilled. Do you ever have your hands full with a, a bunch of papers? Or, or something, and you know by the time you're going to get to the desk or by the time you're going to get to the car, something's going to get lost along the way? Well, Jesus says He's got the whole Old Testament and not anything is going to get dropped. It's going to all make it to fulfillment. Jesus will be everything the Old Testament anticipated. Prophet, priest, king, judge. He will fulfill all of those offices and all the other themes. Temple, sacrifice, festivals, clean and unclean, wisdom, exoduses, conquests, return from exile. So many things. Jesus will fulfill the entire Old Testament. He will accomplish it. And nothing, nothing, nothing will be lost. Amen? How encouraging that is. It should also cause us to repent of our picking and choosing, right? Now, maybe we don't physically rip out the pages from our Bible, but there's certainly ones we like to ignore. We're tempted to pick and choose which ones we're going to like and read and follow. We're tempted to not read some of those books. What's your least favorite book of the Old Testament? Which ones are you tempted to skip over and not give any weight to in your life? I'm not saying they're all equally important or equally understandable, but they're all God's Word. And they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And we're tempted to rip some of them, at least not out of our Bible, but out of our lives. What commands are you tempted to just ignore? Now Jesus says, fulfill, not Keep the same. There's a difference. There's a difference between fulfilling and everything staying the same. Because Jesus has come, things are now going to change. The Old Testament remains God's Word and is important for us to read, but we stand in a different relationship to it. 
Now that Jesus has come and is fulfilling what the Old Testament was always driving at, some of those things will not be in play like they used to be. Animal sacrifices, for example. The group in prayer meeting. Joel's been leading the group through the book of Hebrews. It says, why we no longer do animal sacrifices with the blood of bulls and goats. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled them with His perfect sacrifice. So things are changing. Jesus is going to change things now that He's come. But He's not abolishing them. He's not tossing them out. He's fulfilling them. You see who He thinks He is? He thinks He's the point of the first two-thirds of the Bible. So Jesus thinks that He is the best interpreter of the Old Testament because apparently it's all about Him. For the next few weeks, verses 21 through 48, we're going to walk slowly through them. He's going to interact with popular interpretations of things in the Old Testament law. And he's going to give his listeners and us what he considers to be the right one. And it is. And it's going to turn things upside down. And we don't get to pick and choose which ones we want to follow. Look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now these commandments, he says, I think those are the Old Testament commandments properly interpreted and applied by King Jesus, the point of the Old Testament. Or or another phrase like Paul uses for the same thing is the law of Christ. If you break the law of Christ and you teach others to do it too, woe to you. But if you live out the law of Christ and you teach others to follow it too, then you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know about you, but I would love to be called great in the kingdom of heaven just for following Jesus. What's important is to make it into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus ends our passage for today with a sober warning. Look down at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Point number two and last. Jesus requires a greater righteousness. Greater, that is, than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, how do you think verse 20 is supposed to make you feel? I'm sure that at the time, it made the people gasp. (gasps) Did he say that? Did you hear what he said? Some of them, when they heard Jesus say that, they probably passed out in shock. The Pharisees and the experts in the law were seen as the extra super holy people. These were the most religious people on the planet. And Jesus was saying that you had to have a righteousness that surpassed theirs in kind and quality, both deeper and higher. And if you didn't, then you wouldn't see the kingdom when it comes in all of its fullness. That's shocking. But let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I know you do. I know I do. It's really not that hard. Every genuine believer in this room has that righteousness. I mean, think for just a second 
about what kind of righteousness the Pharisees had. It was mostly outward and showy. Is your righteousness outward and showy? It was mainly focused on the lesser of God's commands and ignoring the greater of God's commands. Is that your approach to holiness? The Pharisees' righteousness was based on rule following, not on trusting and loving God. Are you trying to please God through your rule following or by faith? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were prideful about their righteousness. They thought they were hot stuff. Do you think you're hot stuff? They kept looking for loopholes. That was their righteousness. It was all about finding the loopholes so they could achieve. Is that how you try to work out your righteousness? They were unchanged at the heart level. Has your heart been changed by the gospel? Has your heart been changed by Jesus? They had not experienced the new birth. Every genuine believer in this room has been born again. Don't despair. Your righteousness, if you truly belong to Jesus, is deeper and higher and greater in both kind and quality. These words should not throw you off. They should encourage you. And let me tell you one other thing. I don't think it's exactly what he's talking about here. But we know from the rest of the New Testament that we also have Jesus' righteousness on our account. You just sang it. You're my one defense. My righteousness. If you've got that, you've got a righteousness greater than the Pharisees through justification. So it's not that hard to have a righteousness that surpasses these guys. The newest believer in this room already does. Now Jesus is going to unpack that for us in the next several weeks. In fact, I think that's the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount from here to the end. Demonstrating what this greater righteousness looks like from the perspective of the greatest interpreter of the law. And it will challenge us. Jesus intends to turn our lives upside down so that we fit into his truly right side up kingdom. It will require repentance and change. And we won't get to pick and choose which things we want to repent of and to change. But it's entirely possible. Because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he came to fulfill the old, the entire Old Testament, the first two-thirds of our Bible. And he did it ultimately by taking our place on the cross. And by his work on the cross and then in our hearts, we become the kind of followers he wants us to be.